Hi again. You may be asking, why is he leading songs and preaching? I lost the toss. <laughs> yeah, Tim isn't looking at me too well right now. Let me turn this thing on. Okay, have you got me? Have you got me yet? got me? Okay. Very nice. Okay, just a couple of things. Tim's favorite part of the show. Announcements. Um, on the back of your bulletin, there's an announcement here about seniors on the go. And the one thing they forgot to put in there is what day this was going to happen. So we didn't want seniors just going and running amok throughout the community every day of the week. So we wanted to dial you in. If you want to just kind of limit yourself to Monday the 24th for this activity. You know, we've already contacted civil authorities. They're ready for you. So we're ready to go. Um, All-American Sunday, next Sunday. If you show up here. Oh, no, no, I'm going to change it. Let's do the next. No. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I don't pay too good attention to my calendar. It's actually in two weeks. In two weeks, if you show up for Sunday morning here, you'll be by yourself because the rest of us are going to be at Cutter Park, which is just down the street and to the right, and then another right, kind of like halfway in between the stoplights. And that's going to be at 10 a.m., and it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to just be having a good time together. Okay. Father's Day. Hang on. Yeah. Okay, Tim and I have talked, and Gary, and we have teased for years for Father's Day about taking out the front row of chairs and putting in Lazy Boys. Yeah, can I get an amen from the brothers? Why would we think that would be so appropriate for Father's Day? Because being a dad is a lot of work, right? In fact, I guess you could pretty much say the dads are supposed to work. There's something else that's supposed to work, and that's faith. We're supposed to have a faith that works. Would you like to have a faith that works? Sound interesting? Well, first of all, what in the world would that mean? How would you define having a faith that works? Maybe you'd think powerful prayers that get results. Does that sound like a faith that would work? How about the ability to resist temptation? To stop sinning? Any other ideas? Maybe a lot of Bible knowledge? We're working through the book of Acts. And we're looking at different sections and trying to pull out some of the meat there. And the guys asked me last Wednesday if I would speak to you guys this morning. They wanted me to talk out of Acts chapter 6. We're going to read that passage. But the thing that jumps out about Acts chapter 6, just those first few verses, is there were about seven guys who had a faith that really worked. It worked in kind of an amazing way. And so we're going to talk about what made their faith work. What, what did that look like? Let's, let's read it. We'll pick it up. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, In order to wait on tables, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Well, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, 
Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay. Maybe a little bit of background might help kind of explain what's going on with this. Many years before this was written, a guy named Alexander the Great, if you studied your history or you didn't sleep through your history class in high school, you heard about a guy named Alexander the Great who kind of got on an honorary chair and ran around the world kind of conquering people, and he conquered Israel. And wherever he went, he spread the Greek language and Greek social customs. Well, within Israel, some people adopted those Jewish, those, uh, those uh, Grecian uh, social uh, habits and, and the Greek language. And some remained true to the Hebrew stuff. And they kind of got into a big disagreement with one another. In fact, the, uh, the Hebrew Jews tended to look down on the Grecian Jews thinking that they were kind of like sellouts. They'd, they'd given up the customs, they'd given up the language, and so they sort of looked down on them and kind of considered themselves better. Well, also in Greek society, or in Hebrew society, you know, women didn't get a lot of rights in those days. They weren't, uh, sometimes they weren't treated a whole lot better than cattle. They weren't allowed to have, uh, well, they certainly didn't have a vote. I don't think they could own property. Uh, basically, if a woman wasn't married, if she was widowed, well, she was, if she didn't have a son or a son-in-law to take care of her, she was pretty much destitute. And a lot of these ladies would have to either sell themselves into slavery, become a beggar, or be forced into prostitution to take care of themselves. So what the Jewish society did was, on a daily basis, they would have a little collection and distribution of some of the daily goods, you know, some food, some clothes, some necessities, and they would pass that out. Well, here's the rub. The church, whenever it got started, was bringing in believers from both groups, the Hebrew-speaking Jews and from the Greek-speaking Jews. And then... Whenever they came to Christ, all of a sudden the Jewish society said, well, we don't recognize you as part of us anymore, so we're not putting you on the list. We're not going to give you anything. So a lady who, and maybe we ought to even start the lesson here, if you were a widow in Jerusalem in the first century and you decided to follow Christ, it meant having absolutely nobody to look out for you. You really had to trust Christ. And so the church began to take up a collection and they started passing out some of these daily commodities and daily needs to some of the widows and kind of stepping in where the Jewish society had done it before. Now the church was doing it. And here's where the argument started. Remember, they had this kind of a ego trip. If you spoke Hebrew, you kind of looked down on the Grecian women. Well, some of the Grecian Jews felt like, hey, we're not getting an equal amount of care as the Hebrew Jews, the Hebrew widows. And so there got to be a big controversy. Another thing that was going on in the church at that particular time, apparently, is the apostles were sort of running the show. There weren't a lot of other leaders. It seems like everything was coming to the apostles. Not just the spiritual needs, but the practical needs like this. You know, there was a time in our church history whenever Tim was kind of in a situation like that, where not only was he trying to put together lessons on Sunday, counsel with people, disciple people, you know, kind of think strategically, he was also taking calls about, hey, can I borrow chairs from the church? Can I uh, borrow tables? And, hey, there's a door unlocked. Right, Tim? How'd that work for you? Not good. No, it was wearing down. How well can you do all those things? 
You guys ever been spread too thin? Taking care of too many things? It was happening around here. You do too many things, you end up doing all of them a lot less well than you possibly could. And the apostles were noticing that this was happening. By the way, we had to do some of the same things that the apostles did. We kind of adopted a little bit of a philosophy around here to do only what only you can do. The apostles kind of took that same attitude. They thought that the thing that they needed to do was devote themselves to prayer and the the Word of God, to the ministry of the Word of God. And they asked the church to pick out some guys who could take these practical needs and and manage those. Now, here's, here's where my question comes up in this whole thing. When we select leaders around here, you know who normally is the ones that that, that are talking about who the leader might be? Other leaders. That's not what they did in Acts 6. The apostles asked the church to pick out some guys full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. What kind of a faith do you think these guys had that an entire church... I mean, who would you guys pick out? If Gary and Tim and I... Yeah, don't laugh too hard. (laughs) Yeah. Their faith must have really worked. Their faith must have really worked. They must have figured out how to have a faith that worked. Because an entire crowd picked them out. And the apostles commissioned them and allowed them to take over this this practical need. So if we're going to talk about having a faith that works, maybe we ought to talk a little bit about faith. What is faith? How would you define it? Everybody knows Hebrews 11.1, right? Hebrews 11.1 says... Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I was taught that in Bible school a hundred years ago. That was close. (laughs) A long time ago I was taught that one. So if anybody asked me what faith was, I'd throw that back at them. Hard to argue with it. I had a verse. But does that really tell you what faith is? Do you really have your fingers around what that means? Try this on for size. Having faith, faith is just having a high opinion of God. See, sometimes I think we talk about faith and we think of it almost in some sort of supernatural kind of a light. Like, uh, you ever heard somebody say, well, I just can't have faith? Baloney. You sit down in a chair, you have faith that it's going to hold you. Because there's a, there's a point of commitment, right? We all know how to have faith. Faith is just having a high opinion of God. An opinion that's high enough that I'll be obedient to him and trust him and take the next step that he wants me to take. God intends for my faith to work. Look at uh, James 2.20. It says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? See, it's like two wings of an airplane. Which is more important on an airplane, the left wing or the right? If I'm taking the flight, I'd kind of like to have both. I don't think it's going to fly real well with only one or the other. Faith, it kind of works like that with works. Faith without works is like a a plane with only one wing. In order to fly, in order for your faith to fly, you're going to have to have both faith and works. How many of you guys like having things that don't work? Ever had a car that you just couldn't trust? It's miserable, isn't it? It can be the nicest looking car in the world. It can have the greatest paint job, just look fast sitting in the driveway. If it won't start up and get you from point A to point B, it's sort of worthless, right? You know, it's a, it's a flower plant or it's a, you know, something that, that you just don't get any use out of. Faith, without it working, is useless just in the same way. 
God intends for my faith to work. Look at Ephesians 2.10. Paul says there to that crowd, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, in order for faith to work, I think we have to have a faith that will cause us to work. It's kind of a play on words. Your faith won't work unless you're willing to work because of your faith. And it's why God created us. If that vital key has been missing from your walk in Christ, this lesson might help you explain why you're not getting where you thought you would go. Why your faith maybe hasn't been working. Look what else he says over here in Colossians. He tells that group, he says, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Now hang on, he's... He's talking about having a life that's worthy of the Lord. How many of you guys would like for people to be able to say, that man has a life that really is worthy of the Lord? Would you like that? He's going to tell us how. (laughs) He says, and may please him in every way. So we have a life worthy of the Lord, and we please him in every way when we bear fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Man, you know, you, you could probably spend an entire Sunday morning talking about just that verse because there's a whole lot of stuff in there. But what he's connecting together is pleasing God and having a life that's worthy of him. Those two go together. See, and this isn't necessarily on my notes here, but sometimes we get so caught up in going to church and following rules and maybe having the right doctrine or knowing a little bit more scripture than the guy who wants to argue with you. And those things are not the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity isn't how much money you put in the basket or how often you show up at a church building or how often you show up for this event or that group or whatever special thing. The goal of Christianity is to please God. Please Him in every way. Not just generally, but specifically in every way. And He connects both of those thoughts with bearing fruit in every good work. You can't bear fruit in every good work if you're not working. Make sense? And then he says, growing in the knowledge of God. Those of you who have trusted God enough and allowed your faith to cause you to work, have you found that you're knowing God more? And coming to know God is the ball game. Whenever we get to know God, he gets sweeter and sweeter, and it gets better and more powerful. God intends for you to have a work, a faith that works, a faith that works like that. So how do we do that? Well, my first point here is my faith works when I serve others. My faith works when I serve other, others. Well, why would I say that? Look at Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40. This is Jesus talking, and he says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in the heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave Me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked for me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needling clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of these brothers of mine, you did for me. See, when we talk about having a faith that works, having a powerful faith, how many of you, your mind flips to doing amazing things like converting a continent? And going, you know, signing up for foreign missions or selling everything you have and living a pauper's life, giving everything you have to the poor. Sound like it? See, I think sometimes we have the wrong image of what having a powerful working faith is all about. The needs that Jesus is talking about here, are they spiritual needs or are they practical needs? I think they're practical. In Acts 6, the, the, well, the verse that we're really working off of here, you have two kinds of needs. You have the spiritual needs that the apostles were meeting and the practical needs that they had these seven guys help meet, right? Don't undervalue meeting practical needs. How much effort would you put into bringing a glass of water to Jesus? I don't run anymore. I used to run a lot. I used to box, and you have to do a lot of road work for that. And maybe it's because of that, but I just hate to run. So unless someone yells fire or lunch, I'm not going to break a trot. Right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm almost 50 years old. I can probably do that now. You know, I'm, I'm sort of, the hill is sort of in the back, you know, in the rearview mirror. I can kind of look back on that. But I would really get excited about a chance to put a glass of water in my thirsty Savior's hand. I cannot say that I get as excited about putting it in your hand. And Jesus says it's the same thing. If we're going to have a faith that works, I think we're going to have to start looking for ways to serve Jesus by serving people. And I think we're going to have to stop undervaluing people because Jesus really values them. In John 12, verse 26, Jesus said this. He said, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Okay, that word servant, the Greek word for that is diakonos. Does that sound familiar? It's where we get the English word deacon from. Diakonos. In our English Bible, sometimes we get the word servant or slave sort of used interchangeably. Would you think they're about the same? They sort of sound the same, and sometimes, depending on which translation you're using, it can be this word diakonos, or it can be another word. There's a, look at Romans 6.22. try to tie this together and make my point. In Romans 6.22, Paul says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. That word slave is doulos. English is not a real, real specific language. You know that? You have to look for the context that a word uh, appears in to kind of get the meaning. Greek was a little less so that way. It was pretty specific. So there was a difference. And whenever Jesus said doulos in one verse, and he says diakonos in another, I think he's intending to draw our eye to different principles in that. See, the words are not the same. Diakonos means servant means minister. It's a job description. It's what we're to be doing. Slave 
I always thought slave was kind of like a job description. My job description, I've got to do whatever he says. Right? The more I look at Scripture, the more I'm thinking that slave, doulos, is more about relationship. My relationship with God is that he owns me. Now, let's just think about this for a second. If God owns me like a slave, and I'm persuaded that Scripture says that this is true, then if I get really sick, whose problem is that? Is that mine or God's? God's. See, if he owns me, then my problems become his, right? So if I don't have enough money to pay my bills, whose problem is that? Yes, it's my problem. The more so, it's God's because he's the one who provides everything. Slaves are taken care of by their master. Here's the thing. When we understand that we have this right relationship with Christ, that we are a doulos, that we are a slave of God, we don't have to work to take care of ourselves anymore. It doesn't all depend on us. That frees us up to have the job description to serve other people. How many times... You know, I don't want to see hands, and I'm not asking for confessions here. But how many times have you skipped the opportunity to serve somebody else because you wanted to take care of yourself? And how many times has it gone through your head, well, I can't do that because if I do that, then my bills aren't going to go paid. I know they need an extra car, but I might need my extra car. How many times have you thought things like that? See, until we get this slave thing right, until we get the relationship right, we don't get the job description right. Now, go back for a second and look at John 26. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, well, we just found before that that serving him is about serving people. Right? So if you're serving him, you're serving other people, let him follow me. Where did Jesus go? What did he do? Did Jesus come for himself? He came to serve, right? To seek and save the lost and offer his life as a ransom for many? Ooh. Guess what goes with this job description, guys? Seeking and saving the lost. And offering your life. Mm. See, if you don't get the slave thing right, you're going to be terrified by the job description. Right? But if you want to have a faith that works, it's really important that you come to grips with this. Because these are the conditions that the master set down. And he says, where I am, there my servant will be also. Think about this for a second. Whenever you show up, or whenever people... We're slaves of God who take on the job description of a servant, serve other people. Jesus is there. You can also reverse that. It's like math. If you can add numbers one way, it'll come up the same way if you do it differently. If Jesus is going to be there, if Jesus is there, people will be serving. If Jesus is there, people will be serving. Okay. If you have a faith that works well enough to believe that you're a slave of God, that same faith will put you to work serving others. You want a faith that works? Put it to work serving other people. Second point. My faith works when it is in the right spirit. Or when I work in the right spirit. I don't know how I phrase that. What I mean in the right spirit. Well, you notice back there in Acts 6, he said, choose seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit. See, being busy is not the same thing as being faithful. And in a lot of churches, and it's happened to us before, we have confused activity with being righteous or with being faithful. 
I, you know, I could be the busiest guy around here. I could be painting walls and fixing this and really just breaking my back. But if I'm grumping and I'm grousing and I'm irritable and I'm feeling put down, it's not the Spirit of God that I'm doing it in. Some other ways that can go wrong. If I'm serving others or someone for, so someone else will notice me, that's not being done in the Spirit of God. Or if I'm doing it so that someone else will be obligated to serve me back. That's not, my faith is not going to work whenever I do it like that. Because that's not being done in the right spirit. I've got to do it in the, in the Spirit of God. If I'm looking for somebody else's approval, have you ever jumped into a ministry because you wanted somebody else to be impressed? Again, I'm not looking for confessions. You know, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I'd have to stick my own hand up on some of these, and I don't want to be embarrassed. But that's the wrong spirit. That's not a faith that works. So what does it mean to be working in the spirit? We're working in the right spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, if you flip over there, Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. By the way, wine, beer, those are called spirits. You ever thought of that? So don't be filled with that kind of spirit, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. Okay, I'm going to tell you how I understand this. You can feel free to disagree with me. But the way that I understand this is, have you ever been drunk? Did you ever notice it didn't last forever? You had to keep applying the alcohol to stay there? Being filled with that spirit requires some effort and a lot of foolishness and money and you know, prison time and some other bad things that come along with those things, maybe divorce. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, I think, also requires continual effort. I do not think that being filled with the Spirit is a one-time event. When we become Christians, yes, we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and He moves inside and He lives here. But this is a command to be filled. And apparently it's something that we have to work at and sustain. Have you ever tried to put your hand inside of a glove and and you didn't quite get your fingers all the way to the tips? Isn't that irritating? I hate that. I think it irritates God whenever He can't get His fingers all the way into our lives. I think being filled with the Spirit is whenever we surrender enough to let God go into the places that we naturally want to tell Him, I really don't want you there. We have those rooms in our lives, those closets. We have those habits. We have those selfish little areas we don't want God's control in. That's not being filled with the Spirit. That's not working in the right Spirit. Your faith will not work if you're not going to be full of the Spirit. We've got to let God put his fingers all the way into every part of our life. And frankly, it is a battle. And it's not something you do once, and you get it right, and forever you're on cruise control. See, nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded to flow in the Spirit, to go with the flow. In fact, what we are commanded is to walk in step with the Spirit. Look at Galatians 5.25. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If I want a faith that really works, I have to work in step with the Spirit of God. See, being in step with the Spirit, that sounds pretty religious. You know, I don't know if it's really all that complicated. 
it isn't easy, but I don't think it's not. I don't think it's complicated either. I think it's just about taking the next step that he wants you to take. Makes sense. It makes sense, doesn't it? See, if I, it, in Scripture, it's the, the walk of a disciple is called a walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. A walk is about intentionally taking the next step. And once you've taken that one, intentionally taking the next one. Anybody here ever march in a marching band or in the military? A few of you guys? Well, maybe you guys, some of you guys can relate to this and maybe some of you guys can't. I, uh, I was in a very small school system on the southeastern side of the state. Uh, we had a town of about 800. I graduated in a class of 22. I think somewhere right around 20 or 21. But I was, a, uh, I was also a tuba player in the band. We had one tuba player, and we had this very small marching band. And not a lot of us had a coordination. And we looked like we were jazz dancers trying to march because we were never in step with one another. It just it looked terrible. You know, it's like, mm, it's not very pretty. But when you see someone who actually does walk in step, I mean, there's a, there's a cadence. It's pretty sharp. It can be pretty impressive. You see it a lot of times at halftime and in football games and things like that. Staying in step with the Spirit means that I don't run ahead of Him. I'm not doing my own thing, stepping when and where I want. And it certainly doesn't mean that I come to a stop. It certainly doesn't mean that I don't go whenever he's going. See, if I think too far ahead, and this happens, I think, a lot of times to Christians, we assume we know where God wants us to go. We assume we know what that five-year plan is supposed to be. And so we start making our plans to get there. Well, what if God really didn't intend to use me that way, but I decided that he did? What happens Am I in step with the Spirit? It takes a lot of correction sometimes. You ever been slapped down? Ever had all your plans just wiped off the board and you're confused? I thought God would want me to do this. That's a godly thing. Well, it might be a godly thing, but it might not be what he wanted you to do. He might want you to do something bigger or something that looks smaller but is actually bigger. So what I'm finding, and by the way, procrastinating is no better. Procrastinating is, is sinful. It's rebellious. It's rebellious. Which do you have more sympathy for? Someone who's rebellious or someone who's just weak? Yeah, we can all understand being weak because none of us are perfect and there, there are things that we just don't do well. But rebellious is a different story. Whenever I refuse to go where the Spirit's leading me, that's not just weak, that's rebellious. And usually, that brings about discipline. If you're rebellious at work, what will your boss do to you? If you're a slave of Christ, and you're rebellious, you were bought at a price for a purpose to do good works, and he puts something in front of you for you to do, and you say no, what do you think is going to happen to you? What would you do? I think he's really serious about getting his fruit. I think he's really serious about us having a faith that works. But we have to comply and we have to stay in step with the Spirit. It's just about what is he putting in front of you right now. What I've found, I've been a Christian now for about 34 years. Not all of those have been you know, up and to the right. I haven't you know, just grown steadily, you know, just perfectly. I've, I've had a lot of this kind of thing. I've had my ups and I've had my downs. What I have found over that time is the simpler approach is the better approach. Whenever I just focus on, okay, what's God putting in front of me? 
And I found that it's in two categories, one of two categories. Either it's something he wants me to do or something he wants me to not do or to stop doing. Something he wants me to start doing or something he wants me to stop doing. It's usually in one of those two broad categories. Here's the thing. It's great for people to give you advice. It's great for people to give you suggestions and to point you and to try to help you develop that walk with Christ. But if you don't learn to identify what he's putting in front of you for yourself, your ability to have a faith that will work will always be compromised. And to the extent that you learn to figure out what is he putting in front of me, that's the extent to which you learn to hear his voice above all the other voices. And we got a lot of different voices shouting, don't we? A faith that works is working in the right spirit, listening to the right spirit, in step with the right spirit. Don't complicate it. That would be my advice. And I try to take this advice myself. I want you to know I have not got this worked out. I still have my good days and my bad days. By God's grace, I'm having a little bit of a higher batting average. And what I'm finding is, is whenever I get this principle right, things go better. I have less stress. I have more joy. And God does amazing things that I didn't think he would do. And you'll find it works about the same way, too. What is he putting in front of you today? He'll be pretty obvious if you'll ask him to be. What, and if you will do it, whatever he's putting in front of you, if you will handle that in a faithful way, he will bless you and your faith will work. Last point. My faith works when I accept more responsibility. Being men, we tend to, when we figure out what responsibility is, we tend to try and avoid it. Right? But my faith works when I accept more responsibility. Now, in 1 Timothy, and we're going to take a little bit of time to work through this, Paul tells Timothy how to select or recognize deacons. That word, diakonos. It's a job description, right? But it's also an office that's held inside churches. Whenever a person is a diakonos, a deacon in the church, it means that they're taking care of practical needs in the church. There's a lot of responsibility with it. In fact, you're going to notice that the the list of qualifications for a deacon are almost identical to the list of qualifications for an elder. With one exception that I've found, and that is they're not required to be able to teach. And I think that that might be explained because of the difference in focus. The deacons are focused on practical service, and the elders are focused on spiritual service. But let's look at what Paul told Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. He says, Their deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. What kind of men do you respect? What kind of men do you respect? Do you respect guys who avoid responsibility? Or guys who accept it? And when they grow, they take on more responsibility. Don't you respect that? Paul tells Timothy to look for guys that are worthy of respect. Verse 9, he says, They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. See, it's not about just working and being busy and and taking care of needs. It still has to be done in the right spirit. It still has to be done in complete obedience. Verse 10, he says, they must first be tested. And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. How do you test a deacon? 
You plug him into the wall and see if he glows? Might be fun. <laughs> you know, being an elder, that's probably what we should do. Plug him in. How do you test a deacon? You want to know how they tested me? My first job here at the church back in 1991, or 1992 actually, my wife and I cleaned toilets and straightened chairs and cleaned up the building. We did that, uh, I think we took a month at a time, and we did that in rotation with other people. I had no idea that it would lead me here to doing this. None. I cheerfully did it because, actually we started in 91, I was dating my wife, and it was just kind of time to hang out with her. She was my girlfriend at the time, so we served together, and I was having a good time. But if, what do you think they would have done with me had I not been showing up to clean the building? If I said I would do it and I didn't do it. I probably wouldn't have been asked to do too much more, right? I was tested in those things. And Paul's telling Timothy, there has to be some way to test these guys. And I think that's about finding out which guys accept more responsibility. When they're good with this, then give them a little bit more and see if they can handle that. And if they're good with that, you can give them a little bit more responsibility. In verse 11... He says, in the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Okay, this might be a mistranslation. It might be. There's a debate. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there's a debate on some verses in the Bible. Ever hear that? Not everybody agrees on what everything says? This is one of those. The word that's translated wives in the Greek is a word, a Greek word called gyne. Gyne. And it can mean either a married woman or it can mean any woman, regardless of her situation or her status. Back up just before Paul is talking about the qualifications of a deacon, he talks about the qualifications of an elder. He doesn't mention anything about elders' wives. Why would he not do that? Why would he only mention about the wives of the deacons and not about the wives of the elders in the qualifications list? It's in the same book. It's almost in the same breath. Some people believe that this word here is mistranslated whenever they talk about it being the wives of the deacon and means that it's just women in general. The controversy with believing that is it means that women can be deacons. <gasps> well, some people think that the leadership inside the church should only belong to men. Other people think, no, really, that's the only thing that we've been told about is that women aren't supposed to usurp authority from, from men. Okay, so there's probably a whole lot there for you to study, and we're not going to do it this morning in this lesson. I can point this out to you in Romans 16.1. Paul talked, he said, I commend unto you our uh, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant, diakonos, and some translations call it deaconess, not servant, but deaconess, of the church that is in Centuria. I think it's that phrase, of the church, that makes people think that it's not just that she's a servant in the church, but that she's actually holding an office of a deacon inside the church. So what's the upshot of that? Why would I take a couple of minutes to kind of go over that with you? Well, I think the point is, is women are supposed to have a faith that works too. I don't know if I can answer for you and tell you definitively what's meant there. I don't know if I, if I really understand all that. I, you know, I'll tell you, if you ask me what my leaning is, but I'm always open to studying and trying to figure this stuff out. But I think the thing that can't be missed is this isn't just a Dad's Day sermon to dads. 
Having a faith that works, women are supposed to have a faith that works too. He says in verse 12, a deacon must be the head, the husband of one wife and must manage his children and his household well. There is another counterpoint for why it might not be about an office of a deacon, because how can he be a husband of one wife if it's a she? I don't know. Anyhow, they, they brought that, that. You have to work through that, too. He says those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ. Here's the thing. If you want to have a faith that works, you have to first at least accept the responsibility in your own family. If you haven't accepted the responsibility to lead and to care for your children and your household, then you're not ready to take any more responsibility. Push pause for a second. Let me speak to you guys that are leading in ministries and serving in different things. If you're serving in ministry and your family is going to hell... You are messing up. And you're putting your emphasis in the wrong place. You do not have a faith that works. First, accept the responsibility in your own family. I believe that our families have got to be our first ministry. Not an excuse to get us out of other ministry. Because we're supposed to follow where the Lord leads. But he requires his servants, his slaves, in their job description... To take care of their families. Tim and Gary and I, Bob, many others, we've talked before. The things that we've learned as husbands and as fathers have helped us learn how to help you guys and serve in the church. Some of the very same principles that we learned there help us here. If I'm going to have a faith that works, I have to be willing to take more responsibility. I have to start sometimes with small things. Cleaning a building or a bathroom or just a toilet. And then grow from there, become faithful, and let my faith work. Think back up here to the, where we started out in Acts 6. When my faith works, it grows. When my faith works, it grows. As it grows, I'm able to do more work. If we go back to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. See, we don't know about those seven guys too much, right? I read those, that list of names. How many of those names did you recognize and know stories about? Two. If you, if you have a third, we need to talk because I don't know about the other guys and I'd like for you to fill me in. Uh, there's speculation over the guy Nicholas that he might be the starter of a sect called the Nicolaitans, but that's not been proven. Talking about in, in Revelation. Uh, there's a lot of debate on that, a lot of reason to believe that there's no connection. But we do have two guys that are recorded for us and we know something about them. And that's Stephen and Philip. In Acts 6 verse 8, it describes Stephen this way. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs above among the people. He started out full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Look where he is now. He's full of God's grace and power. And look what he did. He went from an, being an administrator over a distribution of, of food and commodities to widows to doing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. In fact, he was so well known for it that they came after him. And they killed him. He was the first martyr for Christ that we know of in the Bible. Second guy, Philip, you recognize his name, right? Acts chapter 8, he's the guy who dealt with the eunuch. Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip, first of all, this guy was able to draw a crowd. You know, a guy who goes from serving 
and, and handing out food to a guy who can draw a crowd. When they heard Philip and they saw the miraculous signs he did, he goes on to doing miraculous signs. They paid close attention to what he said. People who have a faith that works get attention because there's something that works and other people want to know what that is. And Philip was able to tell him about Christ. And he grew and it says, verse 7, with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Both Stephen and Philip had a faith that worked. Their faith grew and they accepted more responsibility. No matter where your faith is right now, or how much you are able to do, or how much you are not able to do. Just be faithful with where you are. Be faithful with where you're at, and let your faith grow. Having a faith that works, again, is not about going out and doing some incredible news-generating activity. It's not necessarily about being a martyr. Sometimes it's just handing someone a cup of water. But if the Lord puts it in front of you, will you answer it the way that is faithful? If you'll do that, your faith will, will work and it will grow. By the way, tying these, these two sections together here in Acts. Acts 8 says it ended this way. So there was great joy in that city. When we have a faith that works, there will be great joy in our city. Why? Because we are rife with religion that doesn't work. We've got churches all over the place, up and down, where people don't change. If you went to a hospital with a, a broken arm or, or you know, gushing blood, you know, and you watch people walking in one door into the emergency room and walking out looking the same, is that the place you want to sit and wait for your turn? Yeah, not me, man. I, I take my chances you know, down at Walgreens and you know, try to wrap it up myself. Why do you think so many people try to avoid churches and try to do it themselves? And we can be just that kind of a church where people walk in these doors. We've got lots of doors. You walk in these doors and you walk out exactly the same way, still bleeding, still hurting, still not getting better because you have a faith that doesn't work. And guess what? Nobody's going to want to come in here and hear what we're doing. Who wants to, to go on a diet that somebody else is on and isn't losing a pound? might be gaining weight. We want to have a faith that works. And when we have something that works, people want it. They want to know. And it's joy because there's hope. We live in a world that is being constantly sucked dry of hope. We hear that Jesus is the answer. We see it on signs and billboards, but we don't know what that really means. And then we talk to those that go to church and we find out that it doesn't mean a whole lot different than what I'm already doing. And there is no hope. Because the marriage and divorce rate inside the church is almost exactly equal to outside the church. God created marriage and he created church. If the people in the church can't get marriage right, then what about in the church? And why should I bother? Why should I try? If we have a, a faith that works, the end result is going to be joy. And in Acts 6, 7, it says there, so the word of God spread. This is back talking about the distribution, where they selected, where they selected the seven. And just from some guys stepping up, letting their faith work, accepting the responsibility, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. 
and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The priests were the biggest critics of Christianity ever. The biggest critics. We live in a world that's becoming increasingly more intolerant of people who claim Jesus as Lord. We have some pretty big critics. You want to know how to win them over? Have a faith that works. So as I'm wrapping up here, what is God putting in front of you? Don't make it too complicated. Start with what's right there. What's he putting in front of you? What's the next step that he wants you to take? Will you take it? I'm asking you to take it. Trust him. Have faith. A high opinion of God. He knows what he's doing. Take the next step that he puts in front of you. Let's pray, and then we're going to be done this morning.